the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast. We are looking at part two of 1975, Charlie. Um, In this episode, we talk about the top teams whose goal kicking still seem to be off this season. Lots of points being scored. The Pies put a plan in place to get rid of the Collie Wobbles once and for all. (laughs) That looks a bit shaky. Uh, Kangaroos start the season in terrible form and the Hawks little fella continues his battle with cancer. Oh, remind us what we've done already, Charlie. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about our teams that did not make finals very quickly. So... Bottom of the ladder there with the cellar dwellers were South Melbourne, uh, 11th place Geelong, 10th Melbourne, 9th Fitzroy, 8th Essendon, 6th Footscray, sorry, 7th Footscray, and 6th were St Kilda. Mm. All right, um, so in 5th place then? So in 5th place, we have the Magpies, Collingwood, with uh, 13 wins, 9 losses, and a percentage of 93.9%. So... Lower than the two teams below them yeah. on the ladder there. Lucky uh, to be in finals. Yes, coached by Murray Wiedemann and captain by Wayne Richardson. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that appointment in a minute. Mm. Um, so some debutants include Andrew Ireland, who's a football guy, uh, John Delamata, Maury Bat, John Wise, and a very divisive character by the name of Phil Carmen. Ah, yes, okay, so Phil Carmen. Can I tell you a little bit about Phil? Oh, please. So his uh, playing career was laced with controversy from the very beginning. In 1970, he joined Norwood from Eden Hope, which was zoned to VFL club Collingwood. And although the ANFC initially approved the arrangement, it rescinded his permit to play after the Magpies' appeal. So an uh, interstate, inter-club tug-of-war ensued, which eventually saw Carmen cleared to continue his career with the Redlegs. He played a total of... 58 games for the club as well as representing South Australia and earned a reputation as a dynamic, audacious, occasionally fiery performer. Uh, Collingwood kept close tabs on his progress and when he finally decided to give the VFL a try at the end of 74, it was, of course, the Magpies who prevailed. Mm. Um, Now, speaking of the Magpies, they haven't changed their uniform at all in terms of the uh, black and white changing to colour. Black and white just stays black black and white. white. Yeah. Yeah. Weird that Collingwood didn't want to change anything about their... Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's not like them. No, no. usually so, so, you know, easy to deal with. So some interesting stuff happened off-season for Collingwood. So Tom Sheridan quit as president, and for a change, no one really wanted the position. Oh, really? Yeah, so not even Frank Galboli, who'd been... <laughs> wanted it for, yeah. Um, the role fell to Earn Clark, but before he took office, Sheridan appointed Murray Wiedemann as coach on a three-year contract. Um, so Clark was determined to get rid of the Collie Wobbles. Okay, yeah. To do this, he stripped the walls of um, pictures of past players so the players were not intimidated by the club's past. Okay. Which I don't mind. Um, Len Thompson had his usual pay dispute with the club, but for a change, <laughs> the new president's like, no, I agree with you, and had put him on the same cal- salary as new recruit Phil Carmen. Ah, okay. Oh, so he's getting his dues. Um, so yeah, interesting change here, and, and Clark will be a very divisive figure for the next season in a bit. 
as, as we all learn. Yeah. Uh, round one was a good start for Coach Wiedemann, though, beating the Swans by 36. But a week later, it was devastation. The Blues smashed them by 93 points. It was almost back-to-back disasters. The Lions jumped them in round three, but the Pies dug in to earn a two-point win. Round four was another game in which Collingwood were able to flex their muscles and beat their opponents, which was the Cats, by 13 points. Uh, then a few losses came round seven against the Kangaroos, though the Pies were falling behind in the early stages and the dreaded, dreaded Collie Wobbles were starting to settle in and to Phil Carmen. He burst through the centre to set up a goal to bring the Pies back into the game. He repeated this at the next centre bounce and the Pies steadied and ran out nine-point winners. Um, Wayne Richardson with 34 disposals, Carmen with 31 and two goals too. Following this, President Ern Clark declared the naysayers should take bloody heed because Collingwood's back. Oh, okay. Round eight, their defence was great in a game against the Bombers, um, holding them to just 38 points, holding their forwards to just 38 points for the game and helping the Pirates to a 26-point win. Round six, they took on the Saints in a seesawing game. Saints took the lead in time on, but led by Phil Carmen, the Pirates were able to shake their wobbles, regain the lead and kick away to a nine-point victory. Peter McKenna was the one who kicked the sealer in this game. But then devastation, round 10, Phil Carmen broke his foot playing for Victoria against Western Australia. And at this point of the season, um, the Pies were third on the ladder. Looking pretty good. Yeah. That's a huge out. Yeah. Round 11, the Pies lost by 22 to the Demons. And President Ern Clark, he decided he needed to address the players. And he delivered a condemnation of their performance and attitude. And Murray Wiedemann was not happy that he had come to address the players because that's his job. Yeah, absolutely. And also when it's like a negative thing. Yeah. Yeah. This loss was also Peter McKenna's last match for Collingwood. So he was held goalless in this match and he was dropped subsequently. Then playing in reserves against South Melbourne a few weeks later, he sustained a serious kidney injury, which brought his season and his Collingwood career to an end. Oh, wow. We haven't heard the last of him. No. But his Collingwood time is up. Wow. Hmm. Um, round Out 12 with a bang Yeah, Wait, yeah. Out, uh, So um, That game against South Melbourne Was round 12 Because the seniors Played as well um, They had to share Their ground with Another team of birds About 300 seagulls <laughs> The Swans took it up To the Pies in the first half Kicking four goals In five minutes To take a half time lead But the Pies took control And the Swans didn't score again Until the 16 minute mark Of the last quarter By which stage The Pies had the lead Running out eight point winners um, they had wins over the Lions and then the Dogs. Round 19, they bounced back after a few losses, led by the returning Phil Carmen back from a foot injury, who played a sparkling game, and he really filled that void left by Peter McKenna. He had 21 disposals, kicked six goals, eight. The Pies winning by 39 points there. The game against Essendon. They beat Essendon by 39 points. Um, round 20 saw the Pies take on fellow Asp- finals aspirants St Kilda, and the Saints started well, kicking nine goals to the Pies, five to take a 24-point lead at the first break. But in again, stepped that man, Phil Carmen. Yeah. Earning his big game reputation, kicking 11 goals in a best-on-ground performance to bring the Pies back into the game, taking the lead in the fourth quarter and running out 19-point winners. 11 goals. Yeah, that's massive. Yeah. A terrible round 21 game against the Hawks at Victoria Park saw only three goals kicked in the first half. The Hawks, one goal, three. The Pies, two goals, ten. Both teams had three on the board at three-quarter time. In the last, the Pies kicked away to win by five goals. Okay. Rubbish game, though. Yeah. Round 22, taking on the Demons in the game with no major repercussions. Demons' Ray Biffin demolished Phil Carmen at fullback. But when Peter Moore kicked a goal at the 27-minute mark to put the Pies in front, they were home by a point. Oh, wow. The Pies sneaking into finals again, as they do. Yeah. yeah. There you go. 
So they, they did start to wobble, mm. they, even after putting them to bed. So uh, lead goal kicker down at uh, Collingwood this year was Phil Carmen, funnily enough. And the Copeland Trophy went to Phil Carmen also. Mm-hmm. Great recruit. You can see why uh, they got stroppy. Where Colin we got stroppy about potentially not getting him. Right? Yeah, well, he's a game winner. Yeah, well, seriously. So that moves us up into fourth spot into the uh, traditional top four, <laughs> uh, where we have the Tigers, Richmond. So captained by Royce Hardigan, coached by Tommy Hafey, with the same as Colin with 13 wins and nine losses, but a far healthier percentage of 113.5. Indeed. Uh, and have Richmond changed their uniform? Uh, no, no, they have not. They could have gone yellow shorts. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, isn't it? terrible. Yeah, they could have. Um, we don't love Essendon's red shorts, <laughs> so the yellow would have been hectic. Yeah. Um, all right, some debutants for Richmond include Neville Roberts, Noel Jenkinson, and a recruit by the name of Bruce Monteith. Yes, so a WA man, Bruce Monteith. He was recruited from Cockburn, uh, uh, South Fremantle. Person, I should say, recruited yep. from Cockburn, and he made his WA NFL debut in 1972. He was a talented and strong marking ruck rover, half forward or forward pocket. He was a key player for the Bulldogs for three seasons, uh, winning a best and fairest in 1974. That's the South Fremantle Bulldogs. South Fremantle Bulldogs, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, and in 75, he crossed to Richmond, where he performed creditably, mm. it says. Mm. Mm. Right. Um, so pre-season, Richmond had their usual fracas with the uh, the league. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, what was so the problem much, this year? Oh, I can't remember. So much so that the league president refused an invitation to unfurl the Tigers flag. Really? He then eventually did go and do it, I believe. But, yeah, a bit of a back and forth, but just getting their name in the paper. Again. Any news is good news. Um, round one, the Lions gave the Tigers a scare, taking the lead in the last quarter. It was only the clever play of McKellar and Thorpe that earned the Tigers a five-point win. Then a week later against the Cats, it took Royce Hart crashing headfirst into the behind post to spark the Tigers into a 40-point win. A five-goal and six-minute burst in the third, proving the distant difference. But then two uncharacteristic losses followed. The Tigers then started the game against the Swans, like the Tigers of old. Bartlett back in vintage form, Dick Clay dominating and Balm throwing his weight around, although it took them a while to shake the Swans. Seven-goal, ten last quarter earned them a 51-point lead. Now, in the lead-up to the next game, which was round six against the Pies at Victoria Park, Mike Sheehan, vet, young journalist Mike Sheehan, yes. labelled the Tigers as the tired old Tigers. Ooh. And when the Pies got out to an early 20-point lead, it looked like he was right. However, led by Hart, Sheedy, Burke and McKellar, the Tigers took the lead at half-time, kicked 7-6 to 1-3 in the third to all but kill the contest and win by 50. Uh, they then beat the Demons pretty easily, and around about this time, they finally got their man, John Petura from South Melbourne. Oh, yeah. Released to the Tigers for Teasdale and Whale Roberts and $45,000. However, the cultural loss of Whale Roberts was probably the biggest loss, according to those at the club at the time, because he was a very revered figure, much loved in the club, uh, uh, really good in like off the ground as well yeah. as on the ground, and kind of was started the end of the Tigers, really. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Like, you, you hear those stories, and it, they're things that we... That aren't visible to us as spectators in no. the game, but there's people inside clubs who are more, far more important than yeah. their output on the field. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, having said that, though, Petura came into the team for round eight against North, and he was probably best on the ground with 20 disposals, three goals, two, although they did lose to the Ruse. Round 10, the Tigers were back to their best against Essendon at the G. KB playing his best for the season with 30 disposals, two goals, two. 
But it was the way the Tigers went about it, hunting in packs, playing as a team, which was the most impressive thing in this 47-point win. Uh, they beat the Cats, they beat the Dogs. Round 15 was actually an embarrassment against the Hawks, though. It took the Tigers 71 minutes to add their first goal, and they added only one more for the game, finishing with two goals, 20. To, oh. lose, to lose by 62 points. Oh, that stings. Mm. Round 16, the Tigers seemed to play well against the Swans, though, and punished them for standing up to them about Petura. A bit of a chip on their shoulder. Yep. Tigers were damaging, holding the Swans to only eight goals, four in the last quarter, while they piled on 26 goals, 11, to win by 107. Neville Roberts with six, KB with five. And you really think they would have gone into that game thinking, yeah, we're going to smash yep, these guys. Goodness. Who do they think they are? Yeah, yeah. Not releasing Petura to us. We'll tell them. We'll show them. Round 17, the Tigers took on the Pies, and with players like Sheedy and Bartlett in best form, the Pies wilted after halftime, and the Tigers took advantage to win by 46. Round 18 with Dick Clay's 200th game, it was a loss to Melbourne. Round 20, the Blues-Tigers clash was a fierce and tight contest all day, and Richmond was embarrassed early by Carlton's pace and system. When Rod Ashman booted two goals near the five-minute mark in the second quarter, it looked like the Blues would tear away, but the Tigers then added nine goals to two, thanks to the power of Neil Baum and the pace and strength of Roberts and Monteith. Um, but thanks to hard work, the Blues drew level 14 minutes into the final term, but the Tigers would hold on for a valiant three-point victory. Round 21, in, in incredibly heavy conditions at Waverley with mud in large slabs, it was the Tiger Cubs, so the younger players like Monteith, Roberts, Carter, who lifted the club to a hard-fought 19-point win over a determined Essendon. And finally, in round 22, the Tigers welcomed Battler, Royce Hart, back into the lineup. He'd been in and out of the team all year, yeah. getting in a, you know, his veteran stage now where his body's all battered. Yeah, yeah, um, needs the recovery. Yeah, they took on St Kilda, but the Saints made it a hard contest, so much so that Royce Hart had his nose broken in the third quarter. It was stitched up and he kept going. Alan Edwards kicked four and the Tigers won by eight goals. Nice. Mm. Solid performance. Yeah. So a couple of big wins for them. Yeah. Which like they've still helps. got that ability, kind of like the do, they do at the moment, that ability just to, to turn, turn it, it on. on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the lead goal kicker down <coughs> Tigerland was KB with 42 goals, 50 behinds. Uh, the young superstar John Petura only managing 12. Okay. For those 12 games he played. Uh, always fun to know. Uh, KB had 465 kicks for the year, 70 handballs. Okay, it's getting, not, not terrible. He's getting more handballs in. Mm. Uh, and the winner of the Jack Dyer medal in 1975 was Kevin Morris. Okay. The third Kevin in a row, but the yeah. other two were KB. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Could have been shitty. Well, could have, couldn't it? few Kevins. few Kevins. Uh, so that takes us up to third place, where sit probably the team to beat, according to last year, Yep. Uh, North Melbourne. So captained by Barry Davis, coached by Ronald Dale Barassi, with 14 wins and eight losses uh, and a percentage of 115.1. Excellent. Um, and their uniform has changed again. They've gone from black shorts to blue shorts. To match their stripes. It's very blue. It's very blue. Very <laughs> 70s. Yeah. Like when you think of 70s football, that's... It's the powder blue. Yeah. yeah. Um, some new deb debutants as well. We've got Stephen Icky and, I mean, surprise, surprise, they've got a reigning Sandover medalist again from, from WA. They've got Graham Melrose. <laughs> They're stacking their team, aren't they? That trophy cat, like, yeah. It'll just be players. jangling. Yeah. 
Um, the Roos started the season disastrously. Four straight losses to Hawthorne, Melbourne, Carlton and Fitzroy. This is coming off the back of a grand final appearance. Yeah, what happened? The wheels have fallen off. And, well, they probably bought into their own hype. And you yeah. better believe that Ron Barassi was not happy. Launching attack after attack on players. So much so that uh, President Alan Aylett and then Al Martello had to sit him down and tell him like he needed to actually relax Calm and down. not go so hard. Um, he listened and one of the things he did was introduce a ping pong table to kind of shift the mood and, and bring back some light-heartedness. Oh. And it kind of worked. Um, you, if only, if, can you imagine a coach these days coming out being like, look, here's what we're doing to, uh, to fix our, loss, our losing. We're, uh, we brought in a ping pong table. Well, that was like one of the things that was a bit of fun. No, I that, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, during this time as well, on the morning of the round three game, Brent Crosswell rocked up secretly at North Melbourne because uh, he'd asked for a pay rise at Carlton and got told off, got a really big talking to for doing so. So he said he wanted to he wanted to cross to North Melbourne. And we know... Um, Shop his wares around. Well, we know he he played under Barassi at Carlton and yes. they kind of clashed quite a bit. But um, when they asked Barassi, Barassi said, get him. So by round seven, he was in Kangaroos colours. Wow. Yeah, another big player. Um, in round five, the... Roos went down to Geelong to play the Cats and in a close game they did enough to earn their first win which was and the team was well led by Kekovic and Barry Davis round 6 they started to really build things up they started well against the Dogs leading by 8 at half time so Barassi decided to praise his players for doing the work um, but then the Dogs came out and outscored them in the third so Barassi said he would never praise his team again <laughs> luckily the Roos were able to turn it around in the last quarter to win by 53 Cable and Roundtail were the best for the Roos um, they lost to the Pies in round seven, um, but the Roos played a courageous game to beat the Tigers following that, which was a morale booster, especially after the Tigers had beat them four times in 1974. Yeah. Um, in their round nine loss to the Bombers, Barassi was charged with speaking to an umpire at quarter time. He'd not been abu- abusive, but he'd been asking why he hadn't been giving Doug Way to go. He was fined <laughs> 100 bucks for his troubles. I mean, that's not really much, is it? But at this stage of the season, the Kangaroos are three wins, seven losses. Yeah, not great. Sports writer Percy Beams, the great man, writing at the time said they would need to win 11 of their last 13 to at least make finals. But you know what? That's what they bloody did. Of course it is. Because we're talking about them. 11 of their last 13. So he's saying they needed 14 wins to make finals. Yeah. I guess, yeah, because it's a top five. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Round 10 in Ross Smith's comeback game for the Saints, the Roos overcame them in the last quarter. Thanks to smaller runners like Feltham, Shimmelbush and Chisnell, they ran out 22-point winners. They travelled to Lakeside Oval and raced to a 26-point lead, which was helped by the Swans' errant kicking. In the second quarter, uh, Teasdale himself kicked one goal five. But they ran out 20-point winners, their first win at Lakeside Oval since 1968. Round 13, Wayne Schimmelbush at Waverley cut the Demons to ribbons, to ribbons en route to five goals. Roos winning by 34. In round 14, another dogged performance from the Lions um, saw a, a hard-fought battle, but the Roos were able to run out nine-point winners thanks to new recruit Graham Melrose, Noel Hand, Davis and Cable. Roos winning this game in round 14 to finally put them into the top five. Nice. Bit of time to spare. Round 15, they ended Carlton's winning streak, who had won 10 in a row at that stage. Overnight and Saturday morning, rain made the ground very heavy and high scoring was out of the question. The Blues recorded their lowest ever score at Waverley Park, five goals, 14-44, and their lowest since 1967 against North. Both teams played a high standard football when the conditions were considered. Um, That's probably the reason for the the low scoring. Barry Davis again prominent, though. Round 16 was Barry Cable's 300th senior game of Australian rules football, so a lot of time in Perth. Mm-hmm. Bit of time in, in with North Melbourne as well, um, but always a big 
uh, thing to, to get over, 300 games. They beat the Cats um, by 54 in round 17. A disciplined, aggressive and systematic North took the Dogs apart to win by 49. Doug Wade with six goals, four. Then in round 18, Ron Barassi was ropeable after the Roos beat the Pies by 52 points. Annoyed because two of his players, Arnold Brightus and Peter Chisner, were sucked into some rough play and annoyed that the team had taken the foot off the pedal in the last quarter, saying they should have won by 100. God, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Not one to rest on his laurels. And you can just imagine Norm Smith the same. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't let him get away with it. Yeah. Round 19, North started poorly against the Tigers and struggled to stay in the game, but they fought back hard, led by Kekovic, who was trying to redeem himself after a very poor grand final the previous year. He kicked three and marked strongly. The Roos hit the lead early in the last quarter when they had to wrestle the lead back twice before running out five-point winners. The game was also a standout for having the equal most behinds ever scored in the third quarter. <laughs> um, the Roos kicked eight and the Tigers kicked ten for an aggregate of 18 in that quarter, which was the same round as the other point scoring. Oh, yeah, yeah, the big week. one, yeah. Round 21, the Roos dominated the Saints at Arden Street in the wet. Slam and Sam kicked 5-3 as the Roos defenders held the Saints to six goals and they won by 70 points. In round 22, North were not at all impressive in their 22-point win over South. Only really playing one good quarter, but enough to beat the Swans and finish third in the ladder. Yeah. So, yeah. Great way to finish. Do watch Percy Beams ask them today. Come hard. Uh, So, the lead goal, goal kicker down at North Melbourne... Uh, in 75 was, not surprisingly, Doug, Doug Wade, Wade, but with a few less, with 47 this year. Yeah, because he kicked 100 last year, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is one of his down years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the Sid Barker medal in 75 went to, no surprise, Barry Davis yeah. for the second time. Yeah. Greatest uh, of the man. Yeah. So, uh, in second place then, moving up the ladder, we have Carlton. Uh, with 16 wins and 6 losses and a huge percentage of 129.2. Captained by Alex Jezelenko and coached by John Nichols in his final year. Not that he realised that. No. There's a few things that go on there. Um, some debutants include Russell Olsen, Danny Halloran, Wayne Deledio, Brett Stad, ah. and Mike Fitzpatrick. Can you tell us a bit about Mike Fitzpatrick? I, I would love to tell you a bit about Mike Fitzpatrick. Uh, another Perth... Another WA lad. Yeah, a few of them coming over. Coming over this year. It's an issue. Uh, raised in Perth and began his football career with Subiaco in, in the Waffle. Uh, Ruckman, he played 97 games for uh, the club between 1970 and 1974, playing in the Premiership in, the seven, in 73 and winning the club's Best and Fairest Award in, 70, in that Premiership team and 74. He transferred to the VFL for the start of the 75 season and played for Carlton. Yeah. Um, round one, Carlton started well in the opening quarter, but things fell apart on the field. Mike Fitzpatrick in his debut game was knocked out early, oh. but stayed on and played in the forward pocket. The Blues battled for the entire second half with only 15 fit players, but held off repeated Geelong challenges and came away with a 32-point bin. Round two against the Pies was a day out for the Blues. Fitzpatrick again and Kennedy kicked five goals each for the Blues, while Rod Austin made, a most, made the most of a rare opportunity to play an attack, steering through two goals actually the first two of his career. Carlton slaughtered Collingwood by 93 points, Rod Ashman best on ground. They beat the Roos easily before going down to the Bombers in front of 75,000 people at Waverley, which was their only loss in the first 14 rounds. 
Round five, they recorded their fourth win in a row over St Kilda, when St Kilda could only manage seven goals, 16, their lowest tally against the Blues since 1970. Star of this match was young Vin Cataggio, who has, it seemed, at last arrived as a senior player. Then in a tough match at Princess Park, Carlton defeated the previously unbeaten Hawthorne in a match of the day by 26 points, and were now on top of the ladder. Um, They then easily beat the Swans by 51. Trailed the Demons early, but came home with more experience to win against them. They kicked seven goals, seven to two, two in the last quarter. Then against their enemy of the 70s, the Tigers, they more than embarrassed them, winning by a comfortable 48 points, again well led by Jezza and Mike Fitzpatrick. Um, round 10, they beat the Lions. Round 11, they beat the Dogs. Round 12, they smashed the Cats by 12 goals at Princess Park in what was a cold and showery Saturday afternoon game. Um, in that game, Rover Rod Ashman kicked a career-high six goals. Nice. Round 13, Collingwood were a much tougher opponent for the Blues compared to round two. The Pies led at the last change, but thanks to a strong last quarter, the Blues ran out 16-point winners, thanks to Robert Walls and big Percy Jones. Um, but last week I talked about another big clash between Essen and, yes. and a bit of a fight. That's what we're up to now. Um, so Essen and Carlton, another game at Windy Hill. Um, so the second quarter of that game lasted for 40 minutes with Carlton scoring 14 goals, 185 to Essendon's four goals, 125. So it was a record quarter aggregate of 18 goals, two. First quarter actually beat South Melbourne's 19-19 team record of 17 goals, four. If you remember that game against yeah. St Kilda. Um, but near the end of the quarter, a massive brawl broke out involving all 36 players. Uh, this erupted when Essendon centre Neville Fields ran past Carlton forward Craig Davis and King hit him in retaliation for some supposed early act of aggression. Um, noticing the unconscious Davis, both Rod Ashman and Rod Austin ran to remonstrate with Fields, followed by their Carlton teammates, and the fight was on. Carlton's Philip Pinnell knocked out Essendon's Dean Hartigan, and it took time for the match to resume. Field umpire Ian Robertson was showered with cans by spectators. <laughs> Eight players were reported. Many more players should have been reported had the umpire been able to turn his attention onto them. Um, but can you tell us about their tribunal decisions following this game, Charlie? Absolutely love to. It's a bit of a domino sort of effect here. Mm. And what was a, a big win for Carlton as well, I should say. Yeah. So, as you said, uh, eight players went to, went to the tribunal. Quite evenly, four Carlton players and four Essendon players, which is interesting. So we had the first one here, Rod Ashman of Carlton, who was suspended for four weeks for striking Neville Fields. Rod Austin of Carlton was also suspended for four weeks for striking Neville Fields, so he's copped a couple of good whacks there, Dev. Philip Pinnell of Carlton was suspended for two weeks for striking Robin Close. David Mackay of Carlton was found... Mackay. Mackay, sorry. Mackay was of Carlton was found guilty for striking Laurie Maloney and severely reprimanded. Only reprimanded. Yeah, so didn't lose any games there. Uh, Ron Andrews of Essendon was found not guilty of striking David Mackay. Um, Robin Close of Essendon was suspended for two weeks for striking Philip Pennell. Laurie Maloney of Essendon was suspended for two weeks for charging Philip charging Philip Pennell. And Neville Fields of Essendon was found not guilty of striking Rod Austin. So the man who apparently started the whole thing, was off. Was, was not, found guilty. not guilty. And yeah. ev- basically everyone else was in for it. <coughs> Which is interesting because if you remember the, um, the Richmond Essendon one, the guy who started it was actually reprimanded and was a trainer, I suppose. So he yeah. Got, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. What's that? What are we talking? Uh, 14 weeks all up. Mm. At 14 weeks and one reprimand. Two reprimands. 
David Mackay was reprimanded. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and a few not guilty. And a couple of not guilty. Yeah. With the distraction of that week, the Blues dropped their first game in 11 matches after the Brews. Yeah, they were on a 10 game winning streak. Um, In round 16, Carlton kept winning. In round 16, Carlton kept their winning record against the Kilda intact, which was nine in a row at the stage. Oh, wow. Um, It was a very inaccurate game. The Saints kicked eight goals, 27. The most behinds ever kicked by a St Kilda team. But the Blues were a little better with 11 goals, 22. Yeah, okay. The Blues winning by 13. The game holds the record for most points scored to three-quarter time with 39. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, so it was... Yeah, St Kilda had 21. Carlton had 18 by three-quarter time. It'd be a lot of Bronx cheers after the next goal. Yeah. (laughs) The Blues would win only two of their last six games, losing a thriller to the Hawks, getting over a determined South by 28. Then losses to Melbourne, Richmond and the Lions saw their form wavering. Although they were close losses... Thanks to their early season wins, they were still in second spot. They finished their season by kicking their highest score at Witten Oval to beat the Dogs by 44. Percy Jones, best on ground. Mm-hmm. And that score in the final round was oh, 18 goals, 11, 119. But on a wet, windy, muddy Western Oval. Yeah, that's big. Pretty good. That's good. Geez, you'd be pretty flat coming into finals, dropping games to 9th and 10th on the ladder yeah, as well. Yeah, Not great. Uh, but obviously still finishing second, so you can't, you've can't. you got to be pretty positive. Yep. But they've done it the opposite way to, to North. They have. Strong at the yeah. start. Yeah, you're you right. Know which way you'd want to be doing it. Yeah, interesting you say that. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll give you some stats later to yes. kind of talk about that. Uh, so, uh, lead goal kicker down at the Blues this year was Rob Walls with 59. And the John Nichols medal in 1975 went to the captain, Alex Jeselenko. So that takes us to the top of the ladder, Timmy. Yes. Where we have sitting those mighty hawks, those mighty flying hawks, uh, with 17 wins, 5 losses, and 137.3%. Uh, coached, of course, by John Kenning Senior, captain by Peter Kimmins. Indeed. All right. Um, and the hawks haven't really changed their... Oh, they got... Sorry. The hawks have changed. They've mostly gone to brown shorts. In some of the games, I think they had brown shorts. Yes. Yeah. They've gone from black to brown shorts. But apart from that, everything else is the same, isn't it? Pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. So not a huge distinguish... uh, You can't really distinguish that much. It's very hard to tell the difference, especially with the the mud. Interesting choice. Yeah. Um, Some debutantes we've got are Barry Rowling's David Polkinghorn. They get Stuart Trott from St Kilda, which is ironic because he's the one who talked about punching uh, Lee Matthews. That's right. Yeah. Um, And Robert Robert Dippier Domenico. Ah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Yes, the big dipper. Uh, so, of course, one of the most colourful football per- personalities of recent years, Robert Dippodomenico's often outrageously larger-than-life demeanour sometimes obscured the fact that he was also a fine footballer. Uh, heftily built at 185 centimetres and 93 kilos, Dipper played most of his career as a wingman, utilising his naturally aggressive instincts to excellent effect. Dipper made his Hawthorne debut in 1975, but then spent a couple of years in the reserves before coming good in 1978. There we go. So still making his debut here, but yeah, he played like 90 games in the reserves or something ridiculous. Did you say yeah, that? Yeah, it took him a while to get, well, three years. Yeah, right? yeah, a lot of games. Um, 
So in round one, there was a wild brawl in the match between Hawthorne and North Melbourne involving 34 of the 36 players. Hawthorne's Don Scott and North Melbourne's Brad Smith did not participate. They were the only two, <laughs> which is surprising. I think I feel like Don Scott wouldn't get involved in that. <laughs> there were no reports from the match, but the Hawks were able to res- reverse the result from the finals the previous year, winning by 29 points. Michael Moncrief kicked six goals five, while Tuck and Lethal were everywhere. Uh, one sad note was Desmar, who broke his leg in the opening quarter. That puts him out for the season, effectively. Mm. The Hawks then beat the Saints by 40 points at Moorabbin. Round three at Waverley against reigning premiers Richmond. Hawthorne booted six goals in each of the second and third quarters to overcome the Tigers by 29. They then beat the winless South Melbourne by 30 points to go top of the ladder before thumping Melbourne by 55 points in round five. Their first loss was in round six to Carlton. Now, between round six and seven... Peter Crimmins was told that his cancer was back and that it yeah. spread to his lungs and he needed treatment ASAP. Yeah. However, he was still able to play the round seven match against Fitzroy. Wow. Because he couldn't get his booking till yeah, yeah, yeah. the weekend. So during the pre-match build-up in round seven against Fitzroy, Kennedy announced to the players that Crimmins would miss at least the next six matches after the week's game for chemotherapy. There was silence in the rooms as many feared it would be their captain's last game. I just want you to go out there and win, Kennedy told them, for the little fella. So highly emotional, the team went out and won by 40 points. Crimmins bravely collected 20 kicks in the performance thick with courage, but ultimately it would be his last match of senior VFL football. And if you haven't read the Peter Crimmins book, it's a really good read. I recommend it by Dan Eddy. So in his absence, Don Scott assumed the captaincy. Uh, Lee Matthews stood in as deputy First-year player Barry Rowling stepped up as Rover to Matthews as the Hawks powered through the season. In round eight, they beat the Cats by 73. In round nine, they beat the Dogs by 76 to return to the top of the ladder. Wins followed over fourth place Collingwood by 49. And the team then took the Magpies' place in, in the four, in fourth spot. They beat Essendon by 56 points in the front of a rabid Windy Hill crowd. So at the halfway mark of the home and away season, the Hawks were on top by a percentage from Carlton. It was about this time of the season, Hawks, Hawthorne actually cleared Peter Hudson back to play with Glenorchy in Tasmania. He'd only played three and a half games really in three years, so there was no, you know, he wasn't really going to come back. There was no real no. thought of it happening. The wins continued to come as the Hawks beat rivals North Melbourne away by 25 points, a seven goal third quarter doing the damage. This was followed by wins over St Kilda by 24, South by 25, thumping win over third place Richmond by 62 and restricting the reigning premiers to just two goals for the day. A 12-point win over Melbourne led the Hawks to a blockbuster top-of-the-table clash with Carlton in round 17. Princess Park was packed to the rafters. The two dominant teams of the season to date played out a classic. Hawthorne led by a narrow margin for most of the day, but in the last quarter, Carlton came home strongly. They led ch- the lead changed many times, and the hero for the Hawks was Brian Douge, Doge, who reeled out of the pack to snag the winning goal late in time on. Peter Knights was Hawthorne's best, along with Lee Matthews, El Martello, Trot and Rollings. It was the Hawks' 11th straight win and put the side two games and 10% clear on top of the ladder. But it was in round 18, um, Hawthorne inexplicably lost to 10th place Fitzroy by 34 points. The club rebounded by setting a new highest score and greatest winning margin in round 19 against Geelong at Princess Park. The Hawks booted 10 goals to one in the second quarter on their way to a record, recording 118-point win. 25-23, 173 to Geelong's 8-7-55. Michael Moncrief kicked seven goals. Rowling's best on ground. Um, but for some reason, it was at this point the club fell off the rails. The big win was followed by a two-point loss to seventh place Footscray after leading by 17 points at three-quarter time. Then a 30-point loss to sixth place Collingwood. 
Um, and then a seven-point loss to 10th place Essendon, despite having eight more scoring shots. But despite losing four of their last five, the club finished on top of the ladder. Um, but yeah, very similar to Carlton, a very poor end to the year. Yeah. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, they're sort of the wheels are falling off these guys, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, so it's, it's not a mar- it's a marathon, not a sprint. That's, That's right. What I say. That's right. You can't you can't win a premiership in July, right? Yeah, no. they say. Uh, so lead goal kicker down at Hawthorne was Lee Matthews with sixty eight. Uh, Michael Moncrief just behind him on fifty seven, and the Peter Crimmins medal in nineteen seventy five went to Peter Knights. Very nice. Let's talk about the Brownlow quickly. Yes. Brownlow in 1975 went to Gary Dempsey of Footscray. He cried unashamedly when he was announced as the winner, um, finishing in the first... If he'd been finishing... He finished pretty high in, in recent years, but this was the first time he'd ever won. I think he came second in 1970. Um, but he won on the final vote of the night. Oh, huge. Yeah. I love it when it comes down to that, when you well, don't know. In, it was done a different way back then as well, where they announced all the one votes, then all the two votes, and all the three votes. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting way to do it. So he didn't give. He was a favourite going into this, but he didn't think he had a chance to win it. Um, that's very interesting. Stan Ells of Melbourne, Melbourne captain, was uh, leading for most of the night with 19 votes, mm-hmm. but then on the very last vote, he was given a three and one by one, so he won with 20. So he was first. Uh, Stan Ells second on 19. Third was Alex Jezelenko. Um, he said he wanted to thank his friend, his wife and his parents. Six years ago, I didn't even think of playing football again, um, and they've helped me tremendously. I've been sitting here for so many years hoping to, for that last vote, and it never came until tonight. Love it. I had a chance on the last vote a couple of times in the past, but I had to sit there and listen to someone else's name called out. Um, so, yeah, it's, and, and it's really good as well, because if you remember, I think, talking about when he debuted, he'd actually been burnt into bushfires... That's right. Before, I think before he started in the yeah. league. Yeah. So some real ups and downs in his career, but a real, uh, a popular win. Yeah, love that. Um, also love it when, you know, and it happened far more often in these days, but when a t- tall defender slash ruckman mm. wins, wins a brown low. Like it doesn't happen these days. No, exactly. That's what I mean. It's just nice to go back to those days where it did the guys who played their role fantastically were awarded yes. for it. Yeah. Not to be controversial or anything, Timothy. No. Now, no. the Coles Goals winner? Um, I've got, I'm going to say... Oh, it's probably got to be Hawthorne, doesn't it? Their percentage? Carlton, 341 goals. Wow. And I guess it's the finals, Charlie. It does. It's finals time. All right. So, uh, first elimination... Well, our only elimination final of 1975 between our fifth and fourth places, Collingwood versus Richmond at VFL Park in front of 65,512 people on the 6th of September. Uh, the Tigers burst out of the blocks here, It was here, squeaky. Charlie. It was a squeaker. They burst out of the blocks um, to lead by 28 points at quarter time. They had the lead stretched to 32 points at the long break, and the Tiger army was in full cry. Of course they were. But in keeping with Richmond's fluctuating 75 season, they began to fall away in the third team, term and were outscored by 17 points to lead by just 15 at the final change. The Magpies smelled the scent of victory in their nostrils and stormed home. They were completely outplaying a Richmond side that had stopped to a walk, but just um, the Pies couldn't make the most of their opportunities on the scoreboard. Time and again, they missed shots for goal when they should have converted. Tigers lay on the ropes, des- desperately trying to avoid the knockout punch. Mm-hmm. They rope-a-doped. Yeah. With only a few minutes remaining in the contest, Collingwood had crept within a goal and appeared set to surge ahead. 
enter Tiger Bill Nettlevold. The 22-year-old stockily-built Ruck Rover was on the end of a rare Richmond 4A forward in the last quarter, taking a mark and calmly slotting through what would be the match-sealing goal. The Tigers hanging on to win here by four points. 11-11-77 to 10-13-73 to keep their hopes of three in a row alive. Huge. Following this loss, Murray Wiedemann and his selectors were hauled before the Collingwood president, Ern Clark, to explain the loss. Um, he also had a bit of a run-in with... Oh, Earl, Ern Clark had a bit of a run-in with Phil Carmen here as well. Really? And this is a good, interesting lead-in into what will happen in 76. Okay, okay. Geez, that's quite aggressive, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. No one's feeling good after losing an elimination final. No, and to then, be hauled before yeah. the committee to explain your selections. Yeah. It's placing firmly the blame on Murray Wiedemann, yeah. there, isn't it? Yeah, and selectors, absolutely. Uh, so that takes us to our first qualifying final, which was uh, North Melbourne versus Carlton at the MCG in front of a relatively low crowd of 74,000. Uh, yeah. On that very same day. Yeah. Um, so North had twice as many shots at Carl- as Carlton in the opening quarter, but kicked poorly. It's 4-1 to 4-6. John Burns had been selected as the pivot-dominated player from the engine room. North were really in command from start to finish, and it was only Carlton's accuracy in front of goal that flattered their general performance. You'll see they kicked 12 mm. goals for here. Yeah. They were indeed lucky that they were only 20 points in arrears at the final siren. So much did North have their measure. Graham Melrose and Barry Cable were in fine form, as was Captain Barry Davis, and their defence led, led by Dench, Rantel, and Gumbleton. So North Melbourne by 20 points. Yeah, quite comfortably, as you said. Quite. Yeah. Uh, so then coming to those semi-finals the week after, we had uh, Carlton, the loser of the qualifying, playing Richmond, the winner of the elimination uh, at the MCG in front of 76,967 people. Yeah, so the pundits were tipping a dry hard, tipping the dry hard surface at the MCG would not help Richmond in its clash with Carlton, but then it poured. It absolutely oh. buckered down and the tables were turned. Overnight and morning rain turned the ground into a quagmire. Standard of the game was still quite high though. Richmond showed more adaptability to the conditions. Carlton fought back well in the last quarter to get within seven points of the Tigers, who led from the first bounce. There's little doubt, there, there is little doubt that Richmond's three goals, four in the first quarter, won them the game. Although the Blues did make a match of it. The leeway was too great. Had Carlton been able to score more than just two points in that first quarter, they might have actually had a chance. Yeah. Um, but Richmond's smaller brigade, led by Paul Sproul, showed the way home. Richmond winning by nine points here. Huge. Yeah. Carlton going out in straight sets from second position. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so on that same day at VFL Park in front of 52,076 people, we had the minor premiers Hawthorne playing off against North Melbourne. Yes. So um, Michael Moncrief had been in poor form, so selectors punted on reserve forward Michael Cook, who'd kicked some 19 goals in the previous three weeks <laughs> in the Resies. So he lined up. In his debut match. Feeling very confident. Yeah, at full forward in, in the uh, semi. Uh, Hawthorne played great footy to beat North Melbourne for the third time that year. In an exciting game, the Hawks won by 11 points, with Peter Knights playing another sterling game to be the Hawks' best, along with more Tuck Rowlings. Cook bagged four goals in his debut to book a spot in the grand final. Yeah, beautiful. Sending North Melbourne to meet their nemesis. That's right. So Hawthorne's final score there, 12-10-82 to North Melbourne's 10-11-71. So there we have the prelim, as you said. North Melbourne coming up against their nemesis, Richmond at VFL Park in front of 71,130 people the week after. 
That's a big crown for VFL Park. Isn't it? But it's interesting looking at these crowd numbers. So, like, they'd, they'd be down to normal finals. Oh, yeah. If this 100%. happened now, there'd be crisis at AFL yeah, level. Absolutely. Crowds, which they already are this season anyway. Yeah. Um, this match was actually scheduled for the MCG at the start of the year as well. But the, uh, the league board of directors voted in April um, 7-5 in favour of moving it to Waverley. Ah. And interestingly as well, Doug Wade was dropped for this game. Really? Yeah, he had a poor game against Hawthorne the week before. This game is also famous for Tommy Hafey's speech that nothing more tigress than a tiger. So let's have a quick listen to that. Talk to your bl- talk your damn head off. Get across and use your bloody body. Look at that word there. Bloody aggressive. How many years have been aggressive so far? We're not running straight at the ball. That's a cruel part about it, tigers. Nothing more tigerish than a bloody tiger. A wounded tiger. Kevin, fair dinkum, mate. You've got to put your boot into the ball. You're too slow to do all this finessing. Bloody back pocket plumber. That's what I want. You see the bloody straight? Get your boot to the damn thing. Heading towards goal. So it rained virtually the whole week leading into this game. Despite all this, the conditions on the turf were pretty reasonable. The Tigers aiming for their third flag in a row, so needed this win to get them to the grand final again. But they were never really in the hunt against the keener and more confident North Melbourne, who bounded away right from the start and were never really threatened. They stretched their margin to 26 at three-quarter time, and this forced Royce Hart to rally his troops. A goal from him showed the way, but his players were by then a spent force. The strength of North's superb defence ultimately carried the day, with men like Croswell, Rantel showing the way. And when time ran out, North had triumphed over a tired opponent by a margin of 17 points. The tired old Tigers. Tired old Tigers. Uh, That's a real passing of the baton there, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So, yeah, North Melbourne 10 16 76 to uh, Richmond's 8 11 59, as you said. Never, Never quite there. North Melbourne a bit wasteful in front of goals as well. Yes. Uh, so that takes us to that grand final with uh, top of the ladder Hawthorne versus North Melbourne, the uh, favourite. Well, both of them sort of favourites. North Melbourne would have been favourites at the start of the year, Hawthorne favourites at the end. Yeah. Um, now, there's a bit of stuff to go before this. So Hawthorne had the dilemma of do they pick Peter Crimmins for this game? Oh, yeah. He had been play- he played the last five games in the reserves and was, mm-hmm. was training the house down and was desperate to lead his side on because he was still the captain, desperate to lead his side onto the MCG on grand final day. But in one of the most emotional events in Hawthorne history, the selectors made the call to leave him out. Kennedy describing the decision to leave him out as the most difficult time in his football life. If you're feeling tired, just think of Crimmins. He's home, he's not here. He brought his insides up this morning, he's vomiting. He's not here. You weren't at the match committee on Thursday night, as I was, when we had a big argument as to whether he ought to be in or out, and everybody spoke his mind and he finished up out. He's not happy. He wasn't happy about it. Who would be? So going against his hunch that playing him would provide extra inspiration to the side, Kennedy and the selectors decided it was too much of a risk to take. Like, what happens if he gets a bump or what happens... You know, he didn't want to take on that, I guess, duty of care. Yeah. He's sending him out there not knowing what's going to happen. So in the privacy of the committee meeting, Crimmins let the selectors know exactly what he thought of their decision. Oh. Wasn't happy with it. Is it was, I don't know if it was the right decision in the end. Probably was. Well, but hindsight, well, hindsight says it wasn't, actually. Yeah, look, I don't know. Send him out there, they would have, they would have played better. Mm. In theory. Yeah, well. But are you risking someone's life over football? Well, even though we know ultimately he will lose his life. 
Well, it's up to him yeah. whether he wants to risk it, right? You're, you, you've got to give him the opportunity. Mm. He, he's, if he makes the decision that he's putting his name up to want to play, then... And if, only, like, if you don't pick him because his form's not good, then yeah. fine. Yeah, but, if but that not, wasn't an issue. If you're not picking him because you're worried about that... Yeah, I, it's, it's, I wouldn't want to be in that position. Yeah. I do, yeah. The other interesting thing was this grand final was played between the two teams that had played the least finals in the VFL. Of course it is, yeah. Uh, and first game to be replayed in full colour. Oh, fantastic. So to hear more about this game, let's, uh, let's boot up that phone. Let's and do it. Let's chat to, to Essendon legend and uh, kangaroo, I suppose, now, Barry Davis. So before we do, I just did, did want to say that uh, even though those finals numbers have been down, the crowd for the grand final <laughs> the MCG was 110,551. So yep. back up. Of course. Uh, welcome, Barry, to uh, our show. Mate, how are you feeling about today's Premiership success? Oh, it was like a fantastic 120-minute dream. And when it was all over, I pinched myself, kissed the cup, and I knew it was for real. North supporters have been waiting a long time for this, haven't they? North supporters were brought up tough, and they still are. They've had it hard their whole life, you know? A small base, never won a flag. They had the dream. And Alan Aylett and Brassie and everyone were gonna make it come true. And the five-year plan worked. They got their damn dream. There are tears everywhere, heaps among the players, amongst everyone. This premiership was for the supporters. Mate, if we go back to the beginning of the season, I'm sure you don't want to, but it did almost seem as if the Kangas of old were back. You guys lost your first four games this year. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a great start. Barassi was losing his mind. He really let us know how we had underperformed. So what turned it around? Well, Alan Aylett and some of the others on the committee spoke to him and somehow managed to mellow him out a little bit. Who knew that was even possible? But yeah, we steadied the ship and got our season back on track. Now... The Roos finished third on the ladder to Hawthorne um, and you beat the Blues on a wet day at the MCG but then uh, the Hawks beat you that week later in the semi-final. Uh, yeah, we couldn't really get our game going. We didn't win on some of the parts where I thought we might. Our forwards were never really organised and Mick Nolan never really had charge in the ruck. You have to play about 100 minutes of good football to win finals games and we just didn't. It was probably a blessing in disguise, wasn't it? Yeah, that's one way to look at it. We just kept rolling. Having a week off can be detrimental sometimes, and we just kept our routine. And you can see the results today. <laughs> look, you guys just didn't look like the kangaroos we've seen throughout the season, especially the second half of the season, and the Tigers were really waiting for you. Yeah, I suppose you could say we struggled against Hawthorne, and then we had to come through Richmond to get another crack at them. After getting it done the first time, though, Barassi was great. He built us up, and he was confident, and he instilled that confidence in us. So the game against Richmond saw your team control almost everything, and there was only really a small part in the game when they looked like challenging you. Yeah. Look, Richmond got pretty close in the final quarter, but I thought we played much better. We had more to play for. Sure, we made lots of mistakes, but it was pretty tight out there, and we play the type of game which can produce a few errors as well as goals. Now, coming to today, how did you plan to beat the Hawks and win that first Premiership flag for North Melbourne? Oh, we started with the selection, and I think we got that right. We had a good, powerful side, and by this stage, we had a whole team that desperately wanted to win. 
Remembering last year, we were belted by Richmond. And from what we hear, when the team selection took place on Thursday, Doug Wade was again left out of the team. We know he didn't play in the prelim. He was again left out of the team for the grand final. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The committee didn't name him. Well, so what happened, mate? Because we know he was out there today. Yeah, well, he made the unusual decision to go and talk to the committee and plead his case. And they took a bit of convincing. But in the end, Barras came round to his way of thinking. But he didn't play his usual role, did he? Yeah, no, nah, well, that was actually my idea. I suggest that we play both forward pockets in front of him and make sure that Wade didn't go for any marks. And Barras went for that? He did. Yeah, the plan grew on him. And he spoke to Wadey about it, and that's what you saw today. Ah, interesting. Uh, and how much did last year's experience help you guys today, do you reckon? Oh, it, it was big. We weren't overawed by the occasion. There was nothing to distract us, because we knew what to expect this year. And you also played a bit of, well, I guess Barassi played a bit of a trick on the Hawks by naming Goodingham. Well, that was a ploy. Barass put Barry Goodingham on the bench and brought in Gary Ferrant, hoping that Hawthorne would pick Bernie Jones instead of a smaller player. Not that we don't respect Jones, but we thought Gumbledon could cover it, and it worked. As soon as that siren goes, a truck with the 25,000 of the losing side goes to the shredder. There's the Herald poster we want, and this is what we don't want to happen to us. All our plans are laid. All it needs now is your minds and your hearts on the job. And you will bloody come in here so happy. And you'll be bloody worthy winners because you've given me all the support that you possibly can. All that remains is for you to get out there and give your teammates all the support you can. And let's go! Come on! Now, the game started really well for you guys with the first four goals of the match. Any goal's a good goal in a grand final. But when you get four in a row, like those from Johnny Burns, Brent Croswell and Arnold Breedis, at the start of the game, you know it's going to be your day. Perfect start for Kangaroo supporters. Yeah, the crowd loved it, and I think it might have affected Hawthorne. The Hawks must have felt like Christians in a coliseum full of Roman emperors, all with their thumbs down. They started scragging a bit and giving away penalties to stop our snappy teamwork. This only turned the crowd even more against them. But so at quarter time, you were up by two goals, and it was more of the same in the second quarter. Yeah, the goals kept coming in the second quarter, including two more beauties from Burnsy. By the 23-minute mark, I reckon we were about 33 points up. We knew only a 1970-style Carlton performance could save the Hawks then. But we relaxed a bit. Northland got two quick ones, and we're far from out of it. We deserve our lead, which is really double their bloody score. And I want another two-goal lead for this bloody quarter. Fellas, that's one good quarter, only three to go. Don't forget a blitz, a blitz bloody creek from this first 15 minutes of this quarter. You ready to go again? Come on! I bet Barras would not have been happy with that. Yeah, no, he wasn't. <laughs> but it wasn't panic stations either. He was practical about the third quarter. But we realised we only had to stay with Hawthorne in the third quarter, holding on to the 20-point lead and we would have it. Instead, we went further away. Why the bloody hell should we panic? We're better than this bloody mob! There's only one way bloody grand finals are won, by the sort of stuff you've been showing up to now. There are 60 minutes away from history. Bloody Kennedy will be going berserk. They'll come out, and they'll bloody throw everything at us. 
They want us to keep on depositing gold. Just like we bloody need to, we want to, and we can! Yep, and a 20.9-point lead at the last change. Uh, now, we've got a little bit of audio from your coach at the three-quarter time break. Let's take a listen. We said before the match, 100 minutes, at half-time, 60, and now it's only 25! We've come too far to let us slip now. That is not to say we go defensive, though. We're still keeping this bloody pressure up as never been kept up before in the history of North Melbourne! And let's keep this pressure on by long kicks straight up the guts! 25 minutes to go, boys. I'm extraordinarily proud of you. But I want you to make me the proudest coach in league history. And I want this crowd to be proud of every last one of you. So let's go! That's amazing, Joey. Um, I'm glad we got that audio in there. It must really have been a motivation to finish the game off with, with us hearing a speech like that. Yeah, too right. Look, we were all ready to run through brick walls after that. But to their credit, Hawthorne gave us our first real worries in the first part of that last quarter. For the first time in the match, we sort of felt their suffocating pressure and their rugged tackling. But thankfully, our back line stood up magnificently and Hawks could only manage points. And then... You really put the foot down. Yeah, then came our goal rush. They came at a rate of one every 120 seconds the last 14 minutes of the game, I reckon. It was like we started our celebrations early. I think maybe after the first couple, Hawthorne started to chuck it in a bit. Yeah, the game really petered out after that, didn't it? Look, they'd battled for 15 minutes without scoring a goal. Then we had two quick trips forward and scored full points both times. The Hawks realised they were gone and relaxed, hoping we'd all finish. And then when that final siren went, boys, finally that last flagless team of yours got your flag. Yeah, we did. Look, it was a great feeling, more so for the fans. Yet we worked hard as a team to get here and win it, but the long-suffering fans had had decades of false dawns and letdowns. Finally, I've seen a flag, and we really did it for them today. Now, I think the whole football world was happy for North Melbourne today. Yeah, <laughs> judging by the crowd at the MCG, I think a good deal of the football public are happy for us. And it was those 90,000-odd voices cheering for North at the start of the game and those four truly inspirational goals in the first quarter that put us on the road. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the tactics you guys used today? So they played an important role, a huge role in this win. Um, could you start off maybe with that role John Burns played? Yeah, yep. We had plans up our sleeve before the match and they came off. Keith Gregg in the centre and Burnsy roving probably came as no surprise to Hawthorne. But the important thing was it still worked. Burnsy especially was a player who got us going early in the game. And what was your job, Barry? Well, my job was to get in front of Kelvin Moore because he likes to punch the ball away. Our forward pockets were to stand in front of me and pick up the crumbs. That plan didn't work all the time. My goals came mostly when I waited behind. But the important thing was we were able to get the goals against a pretty good defence. And that Doug Wade tactic you told us about earlier worked as well. It did. Yeah, he finished with uh, four goals too. And he didn't fly for one mark. It worked an absolute treat. And could you pick out some of the better players, Barry, apart from yourself, of course? Yeah, sure. Uh, John Rantel. 
How must he feel today after all those years waiting to play in the Premiership side? Ah, Brent Croswell. The two saved us in the last quarter of the prelim final. Refused to bend and we weathered the storm. Oh, and your defenders. Absolutely. They had some good players in the back line like Peter Knights and Ian Bremner. But we were moving the ball so quickly we were able to catch them out of position often enough. And what about... Oh, oh, and I must say a word about Lurch. He's the forgotten man of North's success. He and the rest of us knew on Thursday that he would be on the outer and he was happy to play along. Imagine how he felt living that secret with people slapping him on the back on Friday for getting back in the side. Look, Lurch has been the number one ruckman at North since I joined the Kangaroos and he played his heart out for the club during many seasons at the bottom. Now, and how about Barass, the first man to coach a premiership side from third place? Yeah, Barassi steps on a lot of toes, and that's why he's so good. But in my opinion, he's the best coach I've ever come across. And can you tell us how you'll be celebrating this momentous premiership? Yeah, well, you all know the effort that's been put in to drag the club from the bottom to the top in four years. Everyone at North deserves to be part of Saturday's premiership, from Alan Aylett and Ron Barassi, down to the cheer squad in those blue and white tuxedos. You can rest assured we will all be celebrating this flag long and hard. But as for official functions, I think we're off to the Southern Cross Hotel, and from there we'll probably kick on back at Arden Street. Now, and Barry, before we let you go, mate, I've got to ask you this. What about your own career? Word is you're thinking of retiring. Look, <laughs> I know I'm going to be the subject of a lot of pressure to keep playing, but at the moment I couldn't think of a better way to end my career. Well, Barry, enjoy the celebrations. Well done on creating history today. Yeah, thanks everyone. Take care. Boys, I just want to say, you're a magnificent bunch of boys. You've been very loyal to North Melbourne, to Mick and to myself. Today you've had a just reward, a reward that you've worked very, very hard for. And as good as you feel now, you'll feel the same for the next 50 years. Um, so, some stats from that game, Charlie. Goals, North Melbourne, we got Brightest with five. Wade sneakily with four there. Burns, four. Schimmelbush, two. Blight, Kekovic, Crosswell and Feltham, one. For the Hawks, Martello and Moncrief, two. And singles to Rollings, K. Matthews, Trot, Marr and Scott. Best for North Melbourne, Crosswell, Rantel, Grigg, Burns, Dench, Nolan. Um, yeah, finally North Huge. Melbourne have a premiership. Everyone's got one. They do. You get a flag. Um, I've got some interesting things I want to talk about in a minute. Please. Um, but some other results quickly. Uh, we've got the reserves final, North, uh, Geelong defeating Richmond 114-83. Under-19s, Melbourne losing to Richmond by five points and the McClellan Trophy going to Richmond. North Melbourne winning that, they then went into the Championship of Australia. Mm-hmm. They beat West. They played West Perth, Norwood and Glenorchy. Uh, they beat West Perth in the first game, 90-51, to and played Norwood in the final, comprehensively beating them 117-41. to Yeah, so the, it's getting more more and more obvious that the BFL is the premier. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you look at those Western Australian players who have come to the across, BFL this exactly. season. Um, now, points of interest. For this game, and if you watch the start of the game on YouTube, 700 grand final tickets went missing, meaning there's this massive section behind one of the goals that's empty at the start of the game. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. It's hilarious. Um, umpire Kevin Smith was the last umpire to have sole control of a grand final match. As of next year, they'll have two they'll umpires. Have two umpires, yeah. Um, it's 
during this game as well, one of John Kennedy's very famous speeches, the, what are you going to do? Do yeah. something. That speech happened. So let's have a quick listen to that speech. Now, we've been saying as well how stacked this team is. The Ruse 1975 team had eight future AFL Hall of Fame members. Yeah, wow. Blight, Cable, Dench, Greg, Rantel, Schimmelbush and Wade. My gosh, yeah, that's yeah. huge. Um, Alan Aylett's five-year plan is successful in, yeah. year, in year five. In year five, that's yeah. amazing. Yep. There's not many five-year plans that actually take five years. I know. <laughs> um, and this grand final was between expansion teams. Do you think we'll ever see a Gold Coast versus GWS grand final? Well, are we counting them as the expansion teams? What if it was a GWS Frio grand yeah. final? Is Frio still an expansion team? I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. Like how far? How far do you go? I guess it'll that? it'll happen, won't it? Because yeah. I, I remember in the early nineties when they're like, "Oh, one year we're going to have a all interstate grand final." Yeah, of course. And that's they right. Were like, they were everyone was scared of that happening. And that actually happened. Well, two thousand five, right? Well, two thousand and five, six. six. There's a few. But that two thousand five was the first one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. Um, but the question I wanted to you to ask you, Charlie, and I know you've been pondering this. Oh, I've been. Th- is I this still have no Is this Ron Barassi's greatest achievement? Okay. Taking North Melbourne from bottom of the ladder to premiership within three years. That's super impressive, isn't it? So you left this question with me last time, off air. Yep. And I'm really glad you did because if you'd just thrown this at me, I wouldn't have known what to do. Uh, so if there's a... Let's, let's think of like the, uh, the Mount Rushmore of Ron Barassi. Right. Okay, you got the, 19, the, the 1970 comeback against Collingwood. The 1970 comeback against Collingwood, exactly. Uh, you've got this, yep. which d- is definitely huge. Taking a team without a flag to a flag as a coach uh, in your third year there. Yeah, but coming from wooden spooners as well. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. Which I think is That's extra. Huge. I mean, um, you, you look at 64, but that wasn't him. That was a team thing. That was Norm Smith. And it was... Well, yes, but... It was kind of that, like, uh, patched-together team that was built around him. Is that his legacy, though? I don't think it is. Okay, well, if you, if you go further back then, and then it's the hat-trick, right? Oh, six in ten years. Six in ten years, yeah. with him as captain for, for a few two of them. For yeah. two of them, but as the, one of the main leaders and impetus of the wins there, too. But if you were to ask Norm Smith, what his he would say, no, we're a team. There's no individuals. Yeah. So it wouldn't be a Ron Barassi-led team. It'd just be the Demons. I think this is his greatest achievement. It's you. Do, yeah, you do. I do. I At this point, I mean, the other thing I'd put up there would be transforming Sydney. So when that's he, exactly what I was going to say. When he as goes well. to Sydney in '95, I mean, if you look at Colin in '93, '93. Sorry. Yeah, if you yeah, look yeah. At, if you look at Sydney since he went there, they barely been out of finals. They built this great culture of success, which North Melbourne haven't had since then. So I would say that's you know, probably the other comparable thing. Yeah. The, yeah, taking a team, yeah, taking a team from the wooden spoon who has no winning culture to a flag is extremely impressive. And it's on his iron, it's on his will. Yeah. Isn't it like on his these guys have cut, like he has made the call to bring these superstars together, bringing them together as a team, building that culture. Works. And we've and you know it's easy to say yeah they've just poached the greatest players. We've seen other clubs try and do that, and it has been doesn't work. 
Well, it's, it's been, been that those coaches, coaches you know, fall, downfall. Yeah. Like they've lost their job. Yeah, so Michael Voss. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's hard for me to say that's his, that's his pinnacle as a Melbourne supporter. Yeah. It's definitely his coaching pinnacle. Yeah, okay. Definitely his so coaching pinnacle. So bigger than his effect on Sydney? Yeah. Okay. Because it cre- it's... It sort of made North Melbourne as a club, yeah. almost, didn't it? Well, he really? did. He transformed North Melbourne to the best, most popular club in the country in yeah. the semis, I suppose. Yeah, and he—I guess the same—he and because of that, that's why he got the opportunity to do what he did in Sydney. Yeah, but his his time at Sydney was nowhere near as successful as his time at North Melbourne. It was never going to be though. He was only ever there to kind of change the club's fortunes yes. around, which he did. But he was able to do it because he had. The belief of everyone because of what happened yes. in North Melbourne. Yes. Similar to Rusey coming to Melbourne after Sydney. Well, I mean, you could argue the same thing when Barassi goes to Melbourne in the 80s. He tra- turns them around again, and although he's not there, they eventually get to a grand final in 88. That's and true. They, and he does. So maybe that's his thing is turning the culture of a club. Like he's able to bring that. That together. That, that uh, belief in success. Well, I think, I think that is what he's known for, mm. right? Is his attitude, his. His belief in hard work and not being a, a born superstar, but hard work and being in part of a team and not all resting on his laurels. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard to look past that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, he had so many peaks. He did. Yeah. Yeah. No, no troughs. <laughs> well, I think he signs his signature, isn't it? Seventeen for ten, I think. Seventeen grand finals for ten wins. Love that. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, just to wrap this up then. So, uh, mark of the year was Peter Knight's Hawthorne. Highest score was Carlton, 27 goals, 1,374. Mm-hmm. Most points kicked was Michael Moncrief of Hawthorne with 47 behinds. Rookie of the year, the uh, retrospective rookie oh, of the yes. year, Bruce Monteith of uh, Richmond. He's really? Richmond, isn't he? No, that can't be right. Let me just double check that. I would have brought um, our young. Sure, I thought we would have brought Phil Carmen. No, he's too old. Yeah, rookie of the year was oh. Bruce uh, Bruce Monteith of Richmond. Second was Marty Lyons. Gubby Allen was third. Um, couldn't be Phil Carmen because he's over the age. So I'm going on official. Oh, Ron Evans, so rules. even though he it was his first year in the VFL, he's what 20, 22, 23. Yeah, okay, he's quite okay. old. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, other winners. I'm glad we clarified that because other people would have been thinking the exact same. Yeah, thing. yeah. Um, other winners for the year. So the premiership went to the premiership, of course, went to North Melbourne for their first first Brownlow medal. Brownlow medal was Gary Dempsey uh, with twenty votes. Leading goal kicker. The leading goal kicker for the year this year was. I don't think we mentioned it, did we? Oh, yeah, no, sorry, we did. It was Lee Matthews of Hawthorne with 68 goals, so 67. Is he the first midfielder to win the Coleman? Yeah. Must be. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, 67 as Coleman rules. Yeah. Um, Wooden Spoon? A wooden Spoon with South Melbourne. Um, That's funny. South Melbourne at the bottom, North Melbourne at the top. Love it. Yeah. Um, so, Premiership tallies as of 1975. We've got Collingwood with 13. And this is a complete list now of all the teams. Essendon 12, Melbourne 12, Carlton 11, Richmond 9, Fitzroy 8, 
Melbourne, sorry, Geelong six, South Melbourne three, Hawthorne two, Footscray one, North Melbourne one, St Kilda one. Some retirees, and you, you can choose the best name in a second as well, Charlie. Retirees, we've got Pritt. Peter Crivens playing his last game. I mean, not really retiring. No. Out of the game for a reason. Barry Davis, Doug Wade. Interesting, those two decide to, to walk away once they want a flag. Yeah. Um, we'll hear about what John Rantel does next season as well. Russell Cook of South, Gareth Andrews of Geelong and Richmond, Mike Green of Richmond, Paul Sproul of Richmond, Ian Stewart of Richmond, oh, Ross wow. Smith of St Kilda, Brian Minot from St Kilda, Diamond Jim oh, finishing yeah. up at Melbourne, Gary Farrant from North Melbourne. Vin Waite of Carlton, Gary Merrington of Footscray, Stuart McGee of South Melbourne of Footscray, and Rain Kloster of Geelong, all retiring. There's a lot of Richmond you just mentioned. I did, yes. And a lot of champions, actually. Yeah. Um, can you give us a best name? I would love to. Okay. Or do we just say Bruce Duperuz or just goes back to back, which we, you know, we can't have carryover champs. No. Best name is Robert Dipper Domenico, of course. Dipper. Yeah. Very nice. The big dip. Um, and I've just got a little anecdote here to finish off before we uh, we, we close off. Um, so following the premiership win, um, Ron Barassi had the cup and missed two buses home after the match. Um, the, f- uh, the first bus was from the premiership dinner at the Southern Cross Hotel back to Arden Street. So still carrying the cup, the cup he hailed a cab, which suffered a flat tyre after 100 metres. Barassi took the cup into a nearby pub where patrons were watching a replay of the game. They're almost speechless when the cup came in for a drink to part. So, um, then he so he missed the bus then back from Arden Street from the city. So he left in the car park without a ride. One of the policemen in attendance quizzed him about what he was looking so looking for. Um, he said he needed a ride, so the policeman said he'd do it, and he put him in the back of the divvy van <laughs> with the cup. With the cup, they walked to the divvy van. There was a bloke in the back of it. The cop said to him, "Mate, this is your lucky night. Piss off." <laughs> And so he was off back to the city so that man had a lucky night. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. that's amazing. That is a great anecdote. Yeah. Um, yeah, and thus ends. So we, we now enter a period of, what was it, 12 years where every club has a, flat, uh, a premiership. Oh. The only 12 years in the history of the AFL-VFL where every club has a premiership. Wow. Mm. Oh, oh, yes. yes. Sorry, I'm with you now. Yeah, yeah. So Because as of 1987, we have, we'll have extra teams. That's right. So... For 12 years, everyone has at least one. Yeah. I thought you meant in the next 12 years, everyone won one, but no. No. Okay. No, I mean, if you do look at it, though, between 60, well, 50, 54 to 75... Everyone just got to, one. Except for Fitzroy and South Melbourne, every club's won, so it's 10 different teams. 10 out of 12 in 20 years. Yeah. It's not bad, not is bad. it? No, not at all. Yeah, take it. You would. Beautiful. Oh, Charlie, 75... We're three quarters of the way through the, the 1900s. Jeez, we are too. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, well, until 76, Timmy. I'm very excited. Uh, and, uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, just hearing more and more of these fantastic names mm. and, and more about them. So, uh, until next time, guys. Hooroo. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.